Welcome, I'm Prudence Robertson, and this is EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. Stopping abortions. The governor of Oklahoma just signed one of the strongest pro-life laws in the country. We're joined by Archbishop Paul Coakley of the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City, who shares his thoughts on the legislation. Value them both. Kansans are gearing up for an important vote, which would amend the state's constitution to get rid of a so-called right to abortion and allow Kansans to advance limits on the procedure. Contributor Alan Holdren brings us the story. Fatal shooting. We look into the fatal shooting in Uvalde, Texas, as the nation mourns the loss of students and teachers. Eric Sammons, editor-in-chief at Crisis Magazine, joins us to share his views behind the possible causes of the tragedy. Governor Kevin Stitt of Oklahoma has signed into law one of the strongest pro-life pieces of legislation in the country, essentially stopping all abortions in Oklahoma from the moment of conception. The law has now taken effect and limits all abortions except to save the life of an expectant mother or unless the pregnancy is a result of rape or incest. In this case, a woman must have reported each incident to law enforcement. It also allows private citizens to sue abortionists who knowingly commit an illegal abortion. Governor Stitt released a statement soon after the law took effect and said, quote, from the moment life begins at conception is when we have a responsibility as human beings to do everything we can to protect that baby's life and the life of the mother. That is what I believe, and that is what the majority of Oklahomans believe. If other states want to pass different laws, that is their right. But in Oklahoma, we will always stand up for life. And joining us now is Archbishop Paul Coakley of the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City. Your Excellency, thanks for joining us. Can we get your initial thoughts on the Life at Conception Act, which just took effect in your state of Oklahoma? Well, thank you very much. Um, of course, we're very uh, pleased with uh, the governor's willingness to sign this piece of pro-life legislation. He had pledged from the very beginning that he would sign any pro-life legislation that would cross his desk, and he has kept his word on this one. So I have to say, uh, very happy about it, of course, but uh, a little bit surprised as well that it uh, that it sailed through as it did. Mm. Speaking of the Catholic stance on abortion, baptized Catholic politicians like President Biden and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, they continue to push their pro-abortion agenda. And Archbishop Cordelione of San Francisco, as I'm sure you know, banned House Speaker Pelosi from receiving communion due to her pro-abortion stance. Do you support this move by Archbishop Cordelione? And, and how can we help those who are failing to defend the sanctity of life that are within our church? I admire Archbishop Cordelione very much for his very strong pro-life stand. I uh, offered my support for him immediately about, upon hearing of, of his decision, which I'm sure was a, a challenging, difficult decision for him to make. I know he had worked hard to try to uh, come to some kind of an understanding with uh, Speaker Pelosi and uh, had not been able to do so. But uh, uh, it's... He saw this clearly as his role as, as a pastor to avoid the uh, possibility of scandal uh, for the parishioners and, and faithful of his archdiocese. So uh, I, I admire and 
and support his stand. Mm, that's good to hear. And as we embark on what we hope will soon be a post-Roe era here in the United States, how do you and other Catholics in the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City plan to help expecting mothers who face unplanned pregnancies in your area? Well, we're certainly gearing up for uh, that eventuality. Uh, I, I'm confident, uh, prayerfully so, uh, that uh, we will see some even greater restrictions uh, in a post-Roe America, uh, even as we are seeing them already here in, a, uh, in Oklahoma. But we are, in fact, I'm on my way right now to uh, this afternoon after get, getting off of this uh, interview to bless a, an ultrasound machine provided by the Knights of Columbus. So we're, we're investing in pregnancy resource centers to help uh, women with, with children, un, unborn children, and uh, providing opportunities to uh, support them and all of their needs. Mm. We have yes. issued a call to alert our parishes that with these, uh, with these new restrictions on abortion, there will almost certainly be more women looking to the church for assistance, for support, uh, to uh, care for the, their newborn children, uh, and we certainly stand ready to assist them throughout the throughout their lives. Uh, our, our stand and our support for life is not just pre-born life, not just unborn children, but, but we continue to uh, provide support for uh, all persons uh, throughout life. Well, thank you so much for the witness that you have just shared to um, the fact that you're helping these, these people in Oklahoma, a clearly pro-life state. Archbishop Paul Coakley of the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City. Thank you. We look now to abortion laws in Kansas. In 2019, the state Supreme Court ruled that abortion is a, quote, right, effectively erasing all pro-life laws in the state. Since then, the number of abortions per year has been rising significantly. On August 2nd, Kansas voters will soon have a chance to amend this decision. Contributor Alan Holdren has the story. It's two months away, but Kansas is already fully gearing up for an important amendment vote on August the 2nd. That vote will decide a battle that started in the state capital of Topeka about how abortion is considered in state law here. In 2019, an activist state court radically changed the constitution of the state of Kansas, making it impossible to regulate abortion in even the simplest of ways. And now our state, unlike all of the surrounding states, um, we have no way to place any kind of reasonable limits on the abortion industry. And that means that we will have unlimited abortions happening in the state of Kansas and unregulated facilities unless the people of Kansas pass the Value Them Both Amendment on August 2nd. In a nutshell, the Value Them Both Amendment simply proposes that abortion can be limited because right now that 2019 Kansas Supreme Court decision lifted all limits, recognizing abortion as a fundamental right. And it's made Kansas one of the most liberal states in the country on abortion. That's why Kansas is being treated as a battleground state by both pro-life and pro-abortion advocacy groups. And the battle is heated, even at the highest levels of government. In her most recent comments on the issue, Kansas Governor and Democrat Laura Kelly responded to the leak of the Roe versus Wade decision by saying she would, quote, continue to oppose all regressive legislation which interferes with individual rights or freedoms and threatens the economic strides we've made in recent years, making Kansas a welcoming place to do business. Attorney General and expected Republican challenger in the upcoming race for governor, Derek Schmidt, has a different take on it. 
Kansas is a pro-life state, and that's reflected in the views of Kansas voters overall. Uh, there's going to be a lot of noise and chaff in the air, so to speak, uh, particularly in the event Dobbs uh, overturns Roe. Um, and there's going to be, I think, an effort by the most extreme voices on the pro-abortion side to try to confuse the issue. But this is ultimately about the ability of Kansas to preserve uh, reasonable restrictions and regulations of abortion services that are already on the books, and then to have a thoughtful democratic conversation about what the right policy ought to be for our state. After the leak of the draft document from the U.S. Supreme Court about overturning Roe versus Wade, there hasn't been the vandalism or violence here that's been seen in other states. But there is support for a yes vote to the amendment. Volunteers have been stepping up to get trained and get the word out that a yes vote is a vote for life. The Catholic Church here says that that yes vote is critical to the defense of the life and dignity of both women and children, and not only in the state of Kansas. It's going to be the first test in any state of, uh, of what the voters really believe. And so I think, I think the eyes of the nation will really be upon Kansas in this, and it, it will affect other states also, I think, to, to um, craft their own strategy in terms of um, some states, I think, uh, want to pass similar amendments to protect against their state courts doing what our state Supreme Court did. Here in Topeka, the Kansas State House of Representatives and Senate both passed the Value Them Both Amendment in January of this year with a two-thirds vote. That put it on the August the 2nd ballot for voters to decide. And that's exactly what the pro-life movement here in Kansas wants, for voters to decide. In Kansas, Alan Holdren for EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. The pro-abortion industry is encouraging women to keep their abortions a secret, opening them up to a host of health risks and complications. A new alert from research experts at the Charlotte Lozier Institute shares that when women suffer complications from taking chemical abortion pills, their abortions are often miscoded by hospital personnel as natural miscarriages. CLI reports that as many as 60% of these abortions are regularly miscoded. Dr. James Studnicki at CLI said, quote, we are witnessing a cover-up by the abortion industry aided by willing allies in the media and in politics. For more details on this, we now welcome Tessa Longbond, Senior Research Associate at the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Tessa, thanks for joining me. You know, this issue of miscoded abortions is not something that we often hear about when we talk about the chemical abortion issue. Could you explain for us what exactly that is? Yes, this is just another example of the abortion industry trying to hide the truth about the risks of chemical abortion, mm -hmm. and it's women who pay the price. So these are women who went to the emergency room after having an abortion, and for multiple reasons, perhaps they misled their doctors, perhaps a pro-choice doctor didn't report it, the complication correctly, or perhaps somebody made a mistake, but their abortions were miscoded as natural miscarriages. And what we found is that this can impact the type of care and treatment that women receive. In a groundbreaking first of its kind study, we looked at uh, women who had gone to the emergency room following abortion, and we found that by 2015, which was the most recent year of data in our data set, 60% of chemical abortion-related emergency room visits were miscoded as miscarriages. Mm, that is so tragic. And, you know, we've talked a lot on this show about how dangerous chemical abortions are, but what other uh, risks are women open up to when their doctor or whoever's treating them doesn't know that they've had an abortion? 
for this group of women who went to the emergency room after an abortion, women whose chemical abortions were miscoded had double the risk of being admitted to the hospital for surgery to complete the abortion mm. and significantly increased risk of multiple hospitalizations. Mm. And in fact, the FDA tells abortion providers to remind women to take information with them if they need to go to the emergency room so that doctors know how to treat them and give them the help that they need. And if a woman doesn't share with her doctor what's happening, she can be at risk of not getting the care she needs in a timely manner. Mm. So unfortunate. And, you know, there are recent pieces in the mainstream media at New York Magazine, Daily Coast, other, other mainstream media sources that are saying, you know, there's really no medical reason to, to let your doctor know that you've had an abortion. What's your response to that claim? It is irresponsible and dangerous to tell someone to lie to their doctor. Abortion advocates like to present this advice as benefiting women, but in reality, it only benefits and enables the abortion industry at the expense of women's health and safety. Mm. This is yet another example of the abortion industry putting profits ahead of human lives, and it's putting women at risk. So what's being done about this? Is there anything that we can do to remedy the situation? Is, is anybody doing anything? The most important thing is education. Women deserve to know the truth about chemical abortion and the risks it entails. And so since this is a growing issue, we're trying to spread the word at Charlotte Lozier Institute. And we want to make sure that the general public, women who are considering abortion, doctors, uh, the media are aware of the risks and what's going on. So mm. we just really encourage people to educate themselves so that they can present accurate information to people who are looking for the facts. The work you're doing is so important. We're very thankful for you. Tessa Longbonds of the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Thanks so much for having me. More details have come to light of the fatal shooting in Uvalde, Texas, that left 19 young children and two teachers dead. The parents of these children remain angered and confused as to how authorities handled the active shooter situation, especially the fact that the sole shooter was in the school for an hour before authorities were able to stop him. This, despite the fact that there were several on-duty officers on site and parents were begging to go into the school themselves to save their own kids. There are reports that the shooter, Salvador Rolando Ramos, had been living with his grandparents for about two months at the time of the shooting, that his father was not in the picture and that he was a quote loner who didn't socialize with many people and joining me now to unpack all of this is eric sammons editor-in-chief at crisis magazine eric thanks for joining us you recently wrote a piece analyzing the uvalde shooting titled it's not a gun problem or a security problem so in your view what are the problems that resulted in this tragedy well, the, the thing is, there's a lot of root problems. Most of us are too willing to look at the surface problems, which is, you know, maybe gun control or security at the schools, wherever our political preferences might be. But really, there are problems that go much more to the root of the issue of what's going on that causes people to do such tragic things as, as a school shooting. I mean, we have things like, for example, just the public schools themselves. They're founded on, on a lie, in a sense, that they don't educate the full person. And a lot of these things happen in public schools. And then we have the problem, of course, of fatherlessness. I think that's probably the number one problem when we come to these mass shootings, is that so many of these mass shooters don't have fathers in their lives. And our culture does everything it can to demean the role, the important role of fathers, especially when it comes to raising young men. And the abortion culture. I mean, when you have an entire society that is that founds itself upon the killing of innocent children, 
how can you expect people to grow up and really respect life? There's a lot more issues, but those are just some of the kind of root problems that need to be addressed if we're really going to, to resolve these, these mass shootings. Right. Very good points there. And, you know, these are big problems with no easy fix. So do you have any advice for people who want more for our children and our families? I mean, personally, I think you have to start local. And my, I mean, first and foremost, with the family. Do what you can in your family to have a strong family environment. Obviously, a father and mother. Uh, homeschool, if you can, send them, or send them to a Catholic school. Do what you can in your community. And also, just in your parish life, support your parish life. Support those families. Maybe there's single moms in your, in your uh, parish that you can help support and do things to help them. I think we have to, to really look local because that's where the, the solution to the root problems happen. And then from there, we go out further and we can think more nationally. But I, I think these political solutions often, they're just putting a Band-Aid on, on a hemorrhage that, that, that is going to kill us. Right. And families are the bedrock of our society, so it, it has to start in the communities. You're right. And I want to play a short clip that was posted on social media by one of the little girls who was tragically killed in the shooting. Take a listen. Jesus, he died for us, so when we die, we'll be up there for him. In my room, I have three pictures of him. What are your thoughts, Eric? You know, it's clear that many of these families are clinging even tighter to their faith as they try to comprehend all of this. I mean, that's just so beautiful. I mean, it really is that a child of that age, I mean, I have seven kids, and so, I, you know, I've had them all go through about that age before. And, to have, and so I know a child of that age to have faith like that, to have such a beautiful faith and love of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's just wonderful. Obviously, it's tragic what's happened. But to know that, I mean, if a girl loves Jesus that much at that age, she's with the one she loves the most right now, Amen. which is a beautiful thing in this, in this tragedy. Yes. Yes, could not agree more. And I want to shift gears for a moment while we have you. Give me your thoughts on the fact that Archbishop Cordelioni has banned Speaker Pelosi from Holy Communion. I know that you've been tracking this closely, which bishops are standing in support of him and such. Yeah, I interviewed uh, Archbishop Cordelioni last year about this issue when he first issued his pastoral letter talking about this. And I asked him point blank, why haven't you banned Nancy Pelosi yet? She's, she's been a member of your diocese since you've been there, been very active pro-abortion advocate for, for decades. And he said he just wasn't ready yet. And I didn't know if he'd ever would be ready. And so I just want to praise him and thank him, really, for taking this stand, because it really does put some, some oomph back into the church's message that we're pro-life. Right. If we don't ever do anything about the fact that we're against abortion and we don't back it by saying, yes, this is a, an issue of salvation, then I don't think people will listen to us. But I'm hoping now what will happen is, yes, we'll be blowback against the Catholic Church for it. I, absolutely. But in a sense, that's a good thing, because it reminds everybody when you're looking for the number one pro-life institution in the world, it's the Catholic Church. I mean, I personally became Catholic 30 years ago, partly because of the church's pro-life witness. So I think it's a beautiful thing that Archbishop Corleone here has done. It's beautiful, and it loves Nancy Pelosi's soul, first and foremost. Right, right. And we have just about 30 seconds left, but we also noticed that Pope Francis has announced 21 bishops will soon be made cardinals. One of them is Bishop Robert McElroy, who openly opposes Cordelione's decision to ban Pelosi from communion. And he's also made some comments on LGBTQ plus issues that defy church teaching. So what are your thoughts on this? 
I mean, it's a real disappointment, honestly. Uh, I, I think Pope Francis's understanding of America and how things work here, I, I honestly don't know how well he understands what's going on here. Uh, I mean, the fact they passed over Archbishop Gomez in Los Angeles, who's the Metropolitan Bishop of uh, McElroy, is just a little bit confusing. And I, I think it's very disappointing because I think it sends a bad message and sends a message that maybe we aren't as serious about, about the pro-life cause and about, about being against the LGBT uh, movement as we should be. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Eric, from Crisis Magazine, for joining us and for your expert analysis. Thanks for having me, Rudens. Coming up, a mother and pro-abortion advocate tells her infant daughter she had the, quote, right to abort her, but didn't. I speak out. Plus, we're joined by the president of Human Coalition, Jeff Bradford, who explains what life after Roe may look like. Next. Welcome back to EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. A young pro-abortion mom recently filmed herself telling her baby that, quote, she could have killed her, but chose to let her live. That is this week's Speak Out segment. As hard as this is to watch, we want to play a video for you this week that was tweeted out by Live Action's Lila Rose that shows just how insane our pro-abortion, anti-family culture truly is. Take a listen. I could have killed you, but I chose to let you live. I chose to let her live, as in I had a choice. All women should have a choice. Moms out there, can you imagine looking your child in the face and telling them that if you wanted to, you would have killed them? This is demonic. What you're seeing here is the quiet part of this discussion being said out loud. Our culture teaches people to be selfish. So of course the first thing an abortion-minded woman will think out of fear is, how is this going to affect my life? Our culture encourages women to turn in on themselves, and the easiest way out for them is often abortion. It's not until later that many of them experience wounds and regret. This woman's diatribe exemplifies that all too well. It concerns me that people like her are raising children to begin with. Let's pray that someday she will learn a lesson in basic human dignity and that this baby has someone in her life someday who tells her how beautiful, how precious, and how worthy of life she truly is. Jeff Bradford is the president of Human Coalition, a nonprofit organization committed to protecting life. His group is gearing up for an official decision in the Dobbs case, which most pro-lifers pray will be the end of Roe versus Wade. Human Coalition is forming partnerships with state governments and local pregnancy centers to connect women with supportive services in an initiative to help them choose life. Their comprehensive rescue system is designed to help connect expecting mothers with everything they need, a job, housing, educational services, baby clothes, diapers, and more. Bradford says the pro-life movement should be working to reach out to women now to give them real alternatives. And joining me now is Jeff Bradford himself, president of Human Coalition. Jeff, thanks for joining me. We are currently waiting for a final decision in the Dobbs case. What could life after Roe possibly look like? And how is your organization, Human Coalition, working to help expecting mothers? Well, Prudence, thanks for having me on this uh, today. We're excited to be here. It's a great question. You know, Human Coalition is one of the largest pro-life, pro-woman organizations in the country, really working both at the service level, working to serve women 
right where they're at, vulnerable women who need help, but also working, as you mentioned, in the, in the legislative side and working to help laws that really move the needle for our clients. And so a post-row world, we have to be there ready to serve vulnerable women in all populations. We need to be the hands and feet of Christ. And that means all of us getting together to work together, working with churches, working with the pro-life movement, and working alongside these women who uh, are, are just looking for somebody to help them from dependence to independence. And so I'm excited. There's a lot of great organizations out there, 2,700 pregnancy centers and other life-affirming organizations that are doing a great job, ready to serve these women. And I'm interested in the fact that you all aim to be active in what you call key abortion-dense cities. So how do you identify these areas and minister to people who are really pretty probably abortion-minded? Yeah, we, you know, we're actually able to look at where abortion, abortion density is by zip code. And, and unfortunately, it is in more of the minority, lower socio socioeconomic areas across the states. And so we're working with Organ uh, churches like Kojic, the Church of God in Christ, who has said that they would help uh, women who would abort and adopt children. Uh, they are pro-life uh, uh, church. And so we're working hand-in-hand in, hand in those communities to really provide those tangible services and lock arms with churches across the country. And so we need to be there in those more vulnerable um, areas. And so we want to make sure, as Human Coalition, we're actually um, working in those areas. Mm, that's wonderful. And can you tell me a little bit more, some of the details about this comprehensive rescue system that you all have designed? Well, we're helping build a unified national rescue system. So if you think of just the ecosystem that exists in the pro-life movement, there's thousands of organizations that um, do a great job. Human Coalition really helps quarterback that and puts together really the infrastructure um, and if you look at a state-by-state -state plan, we utilize telecare, which a lot of us, you know, utilize during the pandemic to be able to reach women right where they're at and bring them into a system of care and then provide holistic and comprehensive care with thousands of organizations. In fact, we have 7,000 resource partners that we can bring to bear through our social workers who put a plan of healing together for her. And so we understand her individual situation and really why she thinks she has to abort. And we begin solving those problems for her and really coming alongside her and, and locking arms with her and walking through um, this healing plan with her with the ultimate goal of bridging her back to her faith community. Mm, and that individual connection with women is so important. Can you share with us, Jeff, your personal story and how you decided to work at Human Coalition? Well, Prudence, um, I sold my company in 2010 and was doing consulting work. And the two co-founders of Human, Co what is now Human Coalition, um, had hired my consulting firm and myself. And after getting to know them, one day they handed me their uh, card and said, hey, we save babies using the internet and science and data and technology. What they didn't know is that same week, my wife and I were in Christian counseling. We'd helped start a church and it split around 2010, and we just felt like we needed a tune-up. We felt like we had really just ministered to everyone else, and we had neglected our own marriage. But when we closed the door to that office, my wife began to cry uncontrollably. 
And I thought, gosh, our marriage is in worse shape than I thought, or something was really underneath those tears. And as we peeled those back, it came down to a decision she and I made almost 30 years ago. Uh, during our uh, engagement, we got pregnant and uh, went to my father, who's a Christian man and a good man, but, but got some really bad advice. And we ended up at Planned Parenthood. And we took the life of our first daughter. Uh, and we didn't talk about it for 17 years. Uh, we felt like it was the unforgivable sin. Uh, our pastor didn't talk about it. We as leaders in the church didn't talk about it and felt like that um, it just was something that you didn't discuss. Um, and so that was the first time for me that God really dropped the scales from my eyes as a, as a Christian husband and man, really the devastation that it caused my wife uh, and myself for those 17 years that we um, that we just covered this up. And it wasn't until this opportunity that God really began to see how you can combine really all the things that we learned in our business acumen into a ministry of help and hope for women and children and families. And so it's been the most uh, incredible thing that I've ever done. I am incredibly grateful to serve in this role within an, an amazing organization that helps women um, helps them with help and hope to, to become in a flourishing mom. And we're so excited to be a part of it. We're going to celebrate when Roe v. Wade is overturned, but we're going to get right back to work. Mm. Jeff, your witness is so beautiful. Clearly, it points to a gap in the church that needs to be filled, and you're filling it. So thank you for the work that you do at Human Coalition. Jeff Bradford. Thank you. That does it for this edition of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Until next time, we'd love to hear from you. Find us on social media at EWTN Pro-Life on all social media platforms. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're there. You can also send us a message by emailing prolifeweekly at EWTN.com. We love to hear from you. Remember, life is a gift. Your life is a gift. God bless.